Welcome to the meditations. It's so good to see you all. I'll start with something little weird. I don't know why I'm saying it, but there must be a purpose. There are just two animals in the Bible that talked. I don't know if you knew that. I'm sure you did. All the other animals that I know of uh, in the Bible did not talk. One is a serpent in the garden and the other is the donkey that rebuked the prophet Balaam. I'm sure you knew this. The first animal, the serpent, misinterpreted God's word and misguided the first humans, leading them to disobedience. The second, the donkey, spoke the truth about God and deterred a man of God, Balaam, or Balaam, from disobeying God. It's funny, isn't it? Two animals that spoke ever in the Bible. One leads people to disobedience. The other one stops a prophet from disobeying God. Think about that one. The serpent is considered to be clever and wise in the Bible. And the donkey, even today, is stigmatized as foolish and stupid. Don't be like a stupid donkey, we say to people. I wonder if there is a lesson here for all of us. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he said to them, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's in Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. Jesus also rode a donkey to Jerusalem and was welcomed by the crowds in the triumphal celebration. The first point I'm probably trying to make, I don't know whether it makes any sense at all, is none of God's creation is by nature bad. I think that's one of the things I want to say. Everything God created was good. The serpent was not by nature evil. It was part of God's good creation as mentioned in chapter 2 verse 19. Everything God created was good. If you can handle that, the second point is God can and does use any of his creation for his purposes. And the third is humans are the only creation that is in the likeness and image of God, yet the animals that do not share the same privilege seem to influence the humans. Jesus instructed his disciples to imitate the nature and behavior of some animals. This to me is rather confusing and confounding. If I'm created in the image of God, why do I have to imitate the character of creatures that are not created in the image of God? Was the tempter just a cunning animal that God created? This is a book that was written in 1939 article by um, William Cordwell. So it's called The Doctrine of Satan. I found this very interesting. There is no suggestion of a fallen angel filled with rebellion and hatred to God. Now, I... Not sure about that. I somehow believe there was something fallen somewhere, whether angel or demon. Satan is a person more than functionally separate from God, but always under the divine will and powerless without the divine permission. I have to agree, but I also have to slightly disagree because rebellion is a part of sin. And yes, God can stop me from rebelling. But the problem is if God has given me free will, then he's not going to stop me, is he? He is a servant who knows how to disappear when his work is done. When Job's friends arrive, there is no need for Satan. Not exactly sure what dear Mr. Cordwell means by that. But the way I like to see what happened in the garden is like this. What happened in the garden was the unveiling of evil. It was right at the beginning, God allowing us to have a good look at what evil looks like. 
we may call it the self revelation of sin it was an unaided self revelation from the devil himself showing what he truly looks like and his behavior you rebel against god in return you get nothing good because you already had everything you needed this is something we learn from the garden you can rebel against god but that rebellion gives us nothing good because we already have all good things that we need there is nothing more that we need or we can have without god what you end up with is guilt shame and isolation so we were talking about a set of deceptions and idols associated with that the first deception we talked about last week was the denial of the doctrine of divine judgment don't worry what god warned you about is not going to happen you will not die the idol associated with that that must die so that the deception does not have power over me is the hubris that i will not suffer the consequences of my actions we are all accountable before god as we read in the book of acts if i remember correctly it is appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment but that sometimes we may have to pay a price here itself so we do have to bear the consequences of our actions we can't get away with it the second deception that we looked at last week was the denial of the sovereignty of god we saw the idol that must die is the self sufficiency as if the desire to live like god without god you can be like god you will be like god so don't think that god is the only one who should be like god you can also be like god there are three categories of trees i will make a commentary on that in passing a little later and out of the ground the lord made to spring up all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of garden and the tree of knowledge and knowledge of good and evil so you can see the three categories of trees not three kinds three categories of trees and we will also look at this confusing verse a confusing verse that is and the lord god said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever that's almost making god very low like you know sound like god is jealous scared the third deception i want to mention today is the false hope that knowledge of good and evil is the same as having the ability and the will to reject evil and to choose only good in other words to think that if i have the knowledge of good and evil i will choose good and reject evil but that's not true that's a deception we do wrong not because we don't know what is good and bad it is because we just like doing bad so the third idol that must die is the fallacy that knowledge will save us and we only know that the so called enlightened man the age of enlightenment from the 1700s uh is a clear evidence that we have not really become better people if anything we are exactly the same as human beings have always been the three trees in the garden it seems there were three categories of trees not three kinds there were all kinds of trees in three categories the first all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food i would like you to think about that in chapter 3 we read a little bit about the fruit that was pleasing to the eyes and good for food romba it was already there in fact every tree in the garden every tree in the garden was pleasing to the eyes 
and good for food. Sin, as many interpreters say, is not the pleasure of life. God does not take the pleasure from life. You can still have pleasure. You can still enjoy life without having to rebel. Because it says all kinds of trees and out of the ground, Lord God made to spring all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. And that exact male phrase is used in chapter 3 against or in support for rebellion, why they should rebel. So Rambai said, sin doesn't give us anything more. Rebellion does not give us anything more. We already have everything we need. The second category of tree is the tree of life. It is pleasing to the eyes maybe, but not necessary for human existence or sustenance in the garden. God obviously had a different purpose for that tree. And the third tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pleasing to the eyes maybe, but not necessary for life in the garden. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were not needed for life in the garden because they had all kinds of trees in the first category that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. Let me leave you there and consider a rather confusing verse. Now, Romba, I mean, my job is to confuse you. Genesis chapter 3 verse 22, we read, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. At face value, this verse gives the impression that God was either scared or jealous or both. What was God afraid of or worried about? Surely it is not about humans living forever. You understand what I mean by that, don't you? Eternal life was embedded in human existence at the time of creation itself. We are created in the image of God and eternal life was already there. It did not happen as a result of something else. Definitely not as a result of rebellion. This is God's primary intention for his creation. And this is God's final intention for his creation. Eternal life. We see this in the first book of the Bible. And we see this in the last book of the Bible. The second last chapter of the last book of the Bible we read. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And be their God. So it's a continuation of the Garden of Eden. Revelation 21.3 There was no need for the first humans to eat of the fruit of the tree of life to gain eternal life. Because that was already theirs by God's design and his free gift. Life eternal was already in the eternal plan of God for human beings. So the question is, what were they to gain by eating from the tree of life? Why was God so scared? We have this curious reference in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. I'm not exactly sure what that eternal life means. Life eternal. But think about that one. Eternal life is a gift of God. We don't acquire it by eating the fruit of a tree. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another observation before we define the third deception. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. By the way, um, we will come to this tree of life a little later. 
as to why God forbade them from eating. But I just wanted to mention that at the beginning to put you out of misery or rather to make you think and we'll get back to it. So this verse 3.1 is very interesting. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now why am I bringing this up is there is a common thinking that the woman offended as dear old apostle Paul says and the man was not a party to the offense. In fact that has been the interpretation according to the King James Version. King James Version adds commas and brackets and so on to Hebrew because Hebrew doesn't have any punctuation to give the impression that the woman committed the crime and then helped man to commit the crime or the the serpent tempted the woman and then the woman tempted the man kind of thing. For example, in King James Version we read she took off the fruit thereof and did eat, comma, and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat as if it was a subsequent action. You know, she ate and gave to him and he ate. The New King James Version makes it even worse. It says she took off its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So in other words, and he ate as if like maybe tomorrow, sometime later. John Calvin, the reformer, <laughs> good old John Calvin, was absolutely sure that Adam was nowhere near Eve at that time. Of course, he was there in the garden so he should know, shouldn't he? So that was John Calvin. Adam was nowhere near. The reformer was absolutely sure that Adam was nowhere near Eve at that time. Now you can make whatever theology you want out of the Bible according to your convenience. We looked at that last year and I called it theologies of convenience. The Hebrew is very simple. There are no punctuation. And she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her man with her and he ate. It is interesting to note that in each of the verses 1 to 5 of Genesis chapter 3 while the conversation between the woman and the serpent is going on all the statements are you he said you shall and the woman says we not me it was not a singular it's always she said we so obviously she was including her husband or her man adam in it obviously they ate together because they were eyes open together as we read in Genesis 3:7 it is not as if that the woman ate her eyes got opened and then she suddenly re- oh i'm naked i got to get dressed so she goes on and puts some clothes on and then takes the fruit to her husband and says oh i want him to know that he is naked as well or something like that now it is not like that was it in the bible says their eyes were opened so obviously the biblical reference is that it was a common experience sin entered into human beings as one it is not the woman commit i don't know why paul said what he said he must have had divine revelation that i do not have but we must be very careful in blaming other people for things that we should share the blame as well it's very easy to blame women for the first sin when it is not exactly the woman it was Adam and what surprises me is that this guy never opened his mouth and said a word either in defense or in support of his dear wife you know he never sort of speaks to the devil and says get thee behind me satan or anything like that you know it's very strange he is totally silent what sort of a man is that what is that his role when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes in chapter 2 verse 9 which we already referred to that all trees that god made were pleasing to the eyes and good for food so there was nothing uniquely special about this tree 
I hope you understand what I'm saying. This tree had was not particularly attractive the fruit and it did not taste any better because every tree that God made was pleasing to the eyes and good for food. So the thought that we are deceived by our eyes, we are deceived by what else, you know, the reference from 1 John, that sort of thing doesn't come in here. I mean, that may be true, but that we don't see that here. They did not need eternal life. They already had it. They did not need to know good and evil. They had no need to choose between good and evil, only needed to obey God. They did not need to eat from this particular tree for good food or entertainment. All the trees in the garden had the same qualities. Remember, The second deception was denying the sovereignty of God and desiring something they already had. This is the sin. This is the deception we must resist. That is the deception or the desire for something we already have. Why do I lust after another woman? Why do I lust after what other people have? And I already said that sometime I will make a reference to mimesis from the writings of René Girard and that is why I asked you to see the movie gods must be crazy why do i want according to gerard mimesis is not imitation it is desiring the desire of another it is not just desiring something and those of you who are from india will know that there is a fantastic ad for a television onida you know how it goes owners pride neighbors envy it is not that i should be proud of what i have my neighbor should envy it if they haven't envied it i haven't made it in life You see, this is the problem. So when I go out for a wedding in my Kanchipuram sari, it is not just to make myself beautiful or to show that I am wealthy or anything like that. I must be envied by everybody else who come to the wedding. You see, this is the trickery that we have in the garden. This is the second deception that is desiring the desire of another. Girard and later on Bailey, scholar from Stanford, makes it very clear by giving the example of two children playing so there are two children playing in a room and there are dozens of toys they have been playing for the last 10 minutes peacefully and suddenly the mother hears a scream a crying a whinging mothers of both the children appear on the scene as mothers do and they see them fighting over one toy one train set one dolly whatever and one of the mothers says why are you fighting He says, I want, that is mine, I want it. And the other child, no, that's mine, I want it. I was playing with it. So the mother says, don't worry, I'll get you another one. So the mother goes and gets a train set exactly like that and gives to her son or daughter. He says, I don't want it. But I thought you said you wanted it. No, I want that one. So the other mother negotiates with her son or daughter and says, would you please give it? No, but please give it. Okay so finally the mother convinces the second child to give up his little train set to the other child so there is peace but only for about a little while why because the second child who wanted the train set now wants what the other child is playing with it's lost interest in the train set now it wants a dolly why because the other child has a desire liking for the dolly this is what is called mimesis You are not imitating what another person does. You are imitating the desire of the other person. This is what is graphically depicted in Gods Must Be Crazy. In the tribal community who have never known anything other than just living in the primitive setup, a carelessly discarded Coke bottle 
from a low-flying aeroplane comes down. If you have seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Go and watch the movie. We will talk about it another time. But this is what is happening in the garden. It is desiring the desire of another when you already have everything you need. You see, it is not in the lack or shortage of toys that these two children are fighting. They are fighting because they want something the other person has. In fact, it is depriving the other person what they have that gives me pleasure. It is taking that away. It seems this is what is happening in the garden. So the temptation that came to Adam and Eve was not to be like God, but to take away from God what was his and assume it for themselves. It was not to be like God as if there are two gods. There must only be one God and that one God is not the true God, but the ones who assumes the place of God. This is what is called idol. That is why I started off this series by saying this idol must die. In other words, the temptation is not to become like God. The temptation is to replace God. And this is something we need to understand. I hope that makes some sense. Remember, the second decision was denying the sovereignty of God in desiring something they already had. So why did they follow the advice of the tempter? First, the pure thrill of rebellion and disobedience. There is something about it, just a pure. And you can see young people. In fact, St. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, talks about this thrill. In one place he says, Dear God, why did we go into the orchard and steal all those pears? They were not even ripe and we were not even hungry. But we did it just for the pure joy of stealing and destroying, wasting. That's why we did it. There was no other reason. The thrill of disobedience. Second, the belief that God commands an infringement on human rights. In other words, what God has commanded is actually infringing on my right. As if my right, my human right exists without God. That I have a right that is my own. But who gave me this right? I don't know. Third, by adding to the command the words, neither shall you touch it. The first humans made it not only an infringement, but also an excessive deprivation. In other words, God's commands is depriving me of what I should have. Not only my right to have it, but my right being taken away from me. It's a deprivation of my right. Because they added to it saying, we cannot even touch it. So three things. Why did they follow the advice of the tempter? First, the thrill of disobedience. Another word that I like to use is being voyeuristic. I don't mean voyeuristic in the sense that peeking through windows, looking at men or women naked or something like that. I'm talking about the idea of, idea of doing something that is forbidden. The idea of doing something that is not approved. Second, the belief that God's commands are an infringement on human rights. Human rights somehow seems to sit above God's commands. And today is very clear. We are all about human rights. I don't know what this human right is, except in the context of the rights that God has given to us. Would we understand what human right is without the word of God? Without the Bible? Would there be a human right? Tell me which country has human rights other than countries that has some semblance of the biblical principles embedded into their laws and regulations. Just asking. I'm sure there could be one. But I believe if you look, study carefully, anthropologically, you will find that many of them are influenced by the Christian 
ethos and principles that has already been there. Maybe not in their culture, but maybe in another country, another culture. By adding to the command the words, neither shall you touch it, the first humans made it not only an infringement, but also an excessive deprivation. God is depriving me what was rightfully mine. So the third deception was the false hope that the knowledge of good and evil is the same as having the ability and the will to reject evil and to choose good. We do not fail, not because we do not know, but because we are fallen. You know, it is not because we do not know what is right and wrong that we do the wrong thing. It is our hubris that we want to replace God and become God in our lives. It is the arrogance of rebellion. This is what the prodigal son said, give me what is rightfully mine. You are breaching my human right. This is what the older son said. You have never given me anything. You have deprived me. The two things you can see in that one parable. Give me my right. One brother says, one son says, the other one says, you have deprived me. I am suffering from deprivation because all this time I have obeyed you and you have never given me even a small goat. You have been depriving me of what is rightfully mine. God is an offender. What a wonderful way to put it. You will know good and evil. You can know good and evil, but that wouldn't stop us from not doing evil. We don't need something that we don't need. And it doesn't make any sense, does it? We don't need something we don't need. Well, I mean, but I think that makes sense. Does it make sense? Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. We don't need something when we don't need something. Once again, the tempter did not give them anything new. The temptation was nothing more than a promise of what they already had. They already knew what was good and evil because they were created in the image and likeness of God. In fact, they had no need to know what was evil until the tempter arrived. They knew that what is good is to obey God. To love Him and worship Him with their heart, soul and mind is what is good. To enjoy His provision and look after His creation is what is good. Because that is what God required of them. The prophet Micah reminds his audience or his readers, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is evil is to reject God and rebel against Him. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, we read in 1 John 3, 4. The word translated lawlessness comes from the Greek word anomia, which means an utter disregard for God and His laws. Until the fall, they lived in a state of innocence, knowing only the goodness of God. There was no need for them to know anything else, since God is good and everything God created was good. With the first temptation, corruption of good became a reality of human existence. Corruption, not as a separate entity, but the possibility to corrupt the good. In other words, it is corrupting the good that's what happened in the garden. They already had all these things, but sin corrupted all that good. That possibly is extremely dangerous because of the human free will. Then the corruption continues on. Sometimes I wonder if this is what David meant when he said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I can understand the wonderfully and I often wonder what the fearfully is. The possibility that 
my creation my children can reject me and say you are nothing and you don't exist is a possibility that god put into the creation and that probably is a frightening thought that possibility is extremely dangerous because of the human free will until corruption entered human existence there was only one thing to choose and that was good the eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil revealed to them not the difference between good and evil but how terrible evil is it creates a chasm between god and his creation until now they lived in fellowship with god now they have gone into hiding they felt naked and shamed in the words of the writer to the hebrews adam and eve learned that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living god it is a wonderful thing to live with the living god but it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living god when we disobey him the third idol that must die is the fallacy that knowledge will save us the idea or the thinking that i am my own moral compass the assumption that knowing the difference between good and evil is not the same as choosing good and rejecting evil we do not lose our way not because we lack knowledge what we do with our enlightenment is what determines our destiny not the mere having knowledge this is why we need wisdom knowledge together with skill gives us the ability to take action or not to take action without wisdom we may make the wrong decision and act wickedly so we need more than knowledge we need wisdom obeying god is wisdom the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom i want to finish off by coming back to the difficult verse earlier we made a reference to this verse in genesis 3:22 and the verse was and the lord god said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever i suggested that at face value this verse gives the impression that god was either scared i mean worried or jealous or both there is no reference to the devil tempting them to eat the fruit from the tree of life if you noticed the temptation was only to eat of the fruit of good and evil or um the tree of the knowledge of good and evil not from the tree of life so there is no temptation here then i asked the question what was god afraid or worried about i then commented that it was not about humans living forever because they already had life eternal so why was god anxious or defensive they already had life eternal why would you want to stop them from eating of the tree of life I have already mentioned somewhere that sin is transgression it is rebellion it is lawlessness in that sense what had happened that day in the garden was a change of allegiance the first man and the first woman doubting god and believing the tempter rebelled against god transgressed into the realm of god's sovereignty took themselves outside the law of god and replaced god or attempted to replace god moral failures and ethical lapses are the fruit of assuming the place of god the root of the problem is displacing god from his rightful place if god is on the throne in our lives then we will not worship idols or seek after idols the parable of the wicked tenants is the equivalent of what happened in the garden jesus said the parable of the wicked tenants and you know the story where an owner a man planted a vineyard set up all the infrastructure that were needed and let it to the tenants to look after it and then when he came 
to assume his position in the garden. They kicked out his servants one by one, and when his son comes, they kill him. You know the story. So this is what has happened in the garden: humans rebelling and taking the place and taking God's place. So what was it that God was worried about? Why did God stop them from eating the tree of life? First, having already received life eternal and having declared their allegiance to the enemy of God, they would be living away from the presence of God. To fully understand this, we must consider the story Jesus said about the father who lost his sons. One visibly separated from the father, while the other emotionally separated himself from the father. In the garden, when the first humans transgressed against him, what was God concerned about was the meaninglessness of the eternal life that human beings have. It would mean just eternal separation, not just eternal life. Life separated from God is hell. Hell is the absence of the presence of God. We must understand this verse in the context of a loving father's and mother's heart, where God saying, "I must stop them from living forever without me." It is not living forever; it is living forever without God, because hell is the absence of the presence of God, and this is what hurt God. And this is what God was probably worried. What when I say worried, I'm speaking in human terms here, concerned about. Secondly, when God said He must not be allowed to reach out His hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever in eternal rebellion, what we have here is a remarkable act of mercy. The Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, so that they would not be able to eat of the tree of life and live forever. in that sinful condition without the possibility of redemption or resurrection if they had eaten of the tree of life they would eternally have bodies bodies eternally subject to sickness and disease eternal life without the possibility of redemption and resurrection is eternal death because we living in the corrupted body in the rebellious body in the life without god when you have the possibility of redemption and rebellion then this body must perish eternal life without the possibility of redemption and resurrection is eternal death apostle paul made a reference to this when he said for this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death swallowed up in victory or death where is thy sting or grave where is thy victory i believe this is what god was concerned about and that concern is human beings living eternally in corruption without the possibility of redemption and without the possibility of restoration to himself god is faithful he did not stop visiting the garden because of their rebellion we see god showing a way out to save them from themselves We once again see God coming to the rescue of human arrogance in Genesis 11, now on to 9. I think we will deal with that next two week. For many people, the Tower of Babel is God getting worried because he confused their language. He said, "Oh, they might just come and take over the heaven." That is not what it is. It is as if God is saying, "There is no end to the destruction they can cause to themselves. Let us rescue them from their own folly." that is how i understand god chasing them out of the garden and not allowing them to eat of the tree of life 
and also the Tower of Babel, confusing their language. God is basically saying there is no end to the destruction they can cause to themselves. Let us rescue them from their own folly. This is a reflection of God's concern for human predicament rather than God's jealousy towards human achievement. God could see where it is going and he put a stop to it. Unity, peace and affluence cannot save us from our greed, pride and jealousy. Until we learn to rest in God's love for us, we shall remain restless and devise our own ways to save ourselves. And God is desperately trying to save us so that we don't keep on attempting to save ourselves. So let me read that again. God could see where it was going and he put a stop to it. Unity, peace and affluence cannot save us from our greed, pride and jealousy. One child is screaming for a toy not because it does not have a toy or a similar toy. It is screaming because it wants the other child's toy. The joy is in depriving the other child of its toy and having it. It is desiring the desire of another. Until we learn to rest in God's love for us, we shall remain restless and devise our own ways to save us. God does not give up on us no matter what because God loved his creation from the beginning to the end. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. That's in Jeremiah 31.3. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. The idol of getting rid of God must die. We do not desire to become gods because we are already in the image of God. God has given us that ability. We don't have to eat of the forbidden tree to live and enjoy life because that is given to us in every other tree. All the other trees in the garden also were good for food and pleasurable to the eye. We don't have to entertain ourselves by voyeurism. Worshipping idols is a rebellion against God. It is displacing God and that is what God does not like. It is not that he doesn't want to have someone like him. It is we are going to get into trouble because God has provided everything we need for our good. Well, God bless you and that is an hour.